0: You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. Good morning everyone. It's uh, really good to see you, although I see spots mainly here right now, but uh, it takes it's funny, it always takes me a moment for the eyes to adjust to the lights and uh, but uh, it's really uh, good to to be together on this Kate uh, it's just such a beautiful day. Um, you know, watching the video, you know, and people who are making things and, and craftsmen, I often find myself in awe of people who are artistically gifted. You know, you find someone who can just take a, a blank canvas and just by mixing and matching and how they apply different, uh, whether it's ink or, or some other kind of um, application, um, they can turn it into this amazing work of art. What was, what was blank has is, is now become this. And I don't know, I just find that kind of overwhelming. It's just people who can do that. I can appreciate art. I can't make it. I can't do that. Um, I'm even more in awe of people, though, who can, who can transform something from one state to another. You know, so what I just described, an artist typically starts with a blank slate, and they, they can create that. I'm really amazed at people. In fact, I saw this one a story... It was, it was at a restaurant somewhere, and on one of the walls, something got stained. The wall was stained. I mean, it was, I don't know if something had been thrown, or I don't know what the story was behind it, but it was really, it was pretty significant as far as how it had defaced that wall. And so they were getting ready, we're just going to repaint the whole thing, just, you know, start from scratch and just repaint it. And uh, someone, one of their customers was an artist, and says, hold on, let me see if I can do something with it, and took that stain and added things to it, and when you step back, it was this amazing mural that filled up the entire wall. Um, like so, so, you know, I just, that kind of stuff just amazes me. Or, you know, you've got a, a ripped blanket or something that's just, it's worn and faded and ripped. And it's just, you know, my thing is like, I'm just going to throw it away. Or I've seen others say, no, 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 I'm going to take some sections out of that and I'm going to put them together with other sections and I'm going to make this amazing quilt, and some of you've seen the quilts you see more well, than even at state fairs and things that I mean, just again works of art. What, what amazes me about those kind of people, it's not that they can just see what will be; they have to actually see through what is to get there. I mean, the, the distraction of what is keeps most of us from actually being able to go any further. I mean, that, that's a mess, you know. And we start over, but no, someone can say, "No, that's a mess," but. I see through that, and I can see what can happen. Um, many of you know um, Jan uh, Pizzuto, and I also discovered here just with Keith Fleming, um, among us, actually, a uh, turn wood. And uh, I don't know, I just discovered this here recently, but have you ever gone on YouTube? and just I, they, I just find these wood turners there um, a, a lot, and you take these gnarly, nasty pieces, chunks of wood, that, again, I'm throwing these in the trash heap. They put them on the... Um, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? That, I love that. And all of a sudden, it's, you know, they're done. It's like, oh, man, that is amazing how to be able to do that. Um, somebody, you know, that that what is, for many of us, what is perceived as a weakness can really actually be turned into a strength. That part that that is actually weak actually enhances the value and makes a significant um, Man, when we see this so much of what God is doing as well, this whole idea that in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God creating from a blank slate. In fact, that's the idea of Genesis 1 in particular, is that God created out of nothing. There was nothing there. He didn't even have a blank canvas, there was no canvas, there was nothing, and He created everything there. And it was amazing, it was beautiful, and, and, uh, The heavens and the earth were created uh, by God at that point. And however, as we continue to read through the Old Testament, we discover that things don't stay that way. Um, That because of of humanity's sin and rebellion against God, God's creation becomes contaminated, becomes polluted. And uh, the reality is that what was amazingly beautiful was in a pretty sorry state. Yet God didn't just say, ah, all right, let's just throw it away and start over. Which again, that's probably what I'd have done. You know, I, that's just, I'm like, I'm not going to, because I can't see through that. But God didn't do that. He looked at our star, sorry state and he says, I can fix this. I can do something with this. <clears throat> so he looked beyond the way the things were and he put a plan into motion. And so he sent Jesus into the world to bring about the reestablishment of his kingdom here on earth. What's interesting to me is that towards the end of the Old Testament, God told the people through the prophets that a new day was coming, that this reworking of his kingdom was going to begin and happen. And by the time Jesus arrived a few hundred years later after the prophets, people were ready for God's kingdom to be established here on earth. That was a very common idea and a very common expectation among the Israelites, the Jewish people um, at that time in history. The problem was they had a very wrong idea what that kingdom was supposed to look like. They, had the, they, had, they understood what God wanted to do, but they had a complete misconception of what that looked like. See, to them, a kingdom had military, had power, had authority, and they were under the thumb of Roman rule. So for them— to be delivered, the Messiah was going to usher in God's kingdom by getting rid of the Romans. It was a military type of a leader. And his, his, he, the, the, the kingdom was about power and authority, and God's kingdom would result in the overthrow of, of Rome. Another thing that they thought is that those closest to God would have a higher status in God's kingdom. And they, the religious leaders in particular spent an awful lot of time and an awful lot of energy telling people how to live so that they could be closer to God. They were focused on their own power and control so that they could have higher status in God's kingdom. And then within culture as a whole, status and prestige were really highly valued. To have a title was a big deal. Um, there were, and there were also very clear lines between the haves and the have-nots, very clear distinctions. And as I said before, things were in a pretty sorry state because of that expectation, because of the way they th- thought things were supposed to be, it really sent them down a, a, the wrong path. So as Jesus began his ministry, his message was really very clear. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. Jesus came to usher in the new kingdom, and that's what he taught consistently, time over time after time, that the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. But he knew that it would take a lot of work helping people realize that the kingdom of God is really very different than what they were thinking and the way they were living, and that they had to have a different set of expectations if they were going to be able to participate in God's kingdom. So within weeks of his public ministry, in Matthew's account, I mean, it's pretty quick. He's baptized by John. The next section of passage, he chooses some of his disciples. He's walking along the Sea of Galilee, and then he jumps into the Sermon on the Mount uh, here when we get into Matthew 5 and 7. So many consider the Sermon on the Mount, this first real teaching that we see in Scripture from Jesus, to be probably one, one of, if not the greatest sermon ever given, uh, what's interesting is that he actually begins his sermon, again, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he begins it with, five, with eight blessings. We refer to them as beatitudes, um, but they're blessings. And now, these blessings were quite different than the one I give at the end of each service. Um, rather than helping people feel safe or reassured or hopeful, the beatitudes or these blessings um, from Jesus give a succinct statement of the ethos of the kingdom of God the principles of what it means to live in God's kingdom, where he's trying to recreate a climate, a culture of what God's kingdom was like. So each beatitude begins with a blessing and ends with a reason for that blessing. Now, blessing, or the word, he used the word blessed, blessed are, uh, it conveys this idea of deep inner joy. It's not just, oh, I'm feeling good today. You know, it's not just a a temporary, you know, circumstantial emotion. There's this pervading sense of joy that overwhelms everything else. That's what he's trying to convey here by blessed. And as we'll see, the Beatitudes illustrate how the ways of the world are completely at odds with God's way. And the Beatitudes are not ethical demands, but they're values of the kingdom Jesus came to establish. So we're going to read. We're going to read all of um, the. We're going to read all of the beatitudes. We're only going to address the first two today, but I want us to read just to give you have context. So Matthew chapter five verses one through twelve. So now when Jesus or, or when he Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and for Jesus' um, exhortation here as he begins the sermon with these blessings. And Father, as we take a, t- a little bit of time here this morning to unwrap uh, the first two, God, I hope that you would help us to give insight and understanding that your spirit would speak to each of us, Lord God, I, uh, this morning I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, we're going to look at the first two uh, today. Um, we're going to look at the, the three of them next week, and then the, f- the last three the following week. So for the counting today, for three weeks, we'll be spending some time uh, to do this. And the, so the first one that we're going to spend a little time looking at is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, before I dig in, I need to put to, uh, um, uh, I think, provide some context, two things that relate to context. First one is this, Um, and many of you know this already. But as Kate mentioned, there's Grace Covenant. There's three campuses. You know, one church, um, and we all preach from the same outline. You know, so the outline that you're looking at in your worship guide is the same one in all three campuses. Now, it's developed. Each campus pastor develops that sermon differently, Um, and so what you've heard from me has not been shared to other campuses. Um, It has a very different feel to it, and and so it looks that way. Now. We work on these sermons weeks in advance. Um, in fact, we're into August. We're now working on the outlines that, that you'll be hearing in August. So. And there's nine of us that are a part of this team that developed. There's three campus pastors, and there's six others. Uh, Kate's a part of it. Um, and so she uh, gives valuable contributions and insight and thoughts. And um, as we work through the outlines for this series, we discovered um, that some of us have some pretty strong convictions about how we should understand them. Um, and then we just, dis- now there's, um, but we discussed there there's different ways of understanding them. And so here's what happened is that essentially we agreed to disagree. Um, and so um, each campus pastor was given the freedom to develop their sermon as they saw a fit and appropriate. So, what you see in your worship guide was developed by Pastor Farrell. That was his outline. Um, and he understood poor in spirit to be spiritually bankrupt and lost and without God. Okay? And, that's, as I'm, not, and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I just look at that verse and the passage, and I see it differently. So um, I'm going to diverge from today's outline uh, today. Um, so I do encourage you to actually watch or listen to Pastor Farrell online this week just to compare notes. Um, and again, I, I'm not suggesting one's right, one's wrong. I just think there's different ways of looking at this same passage and getting stuff out of it. Um, now, um, to be fair, I developed the outline that's going to be preached next weekend. I have no doubt Pastor Farrell will be changing his sermon on the Cornelius campus for, for them. Um, I, again, it was, it was fascinating to see just some of the conversations. Again, there was some pretty strong convictions about what it was, and so... But it was just, you know, so, but I appreciated the freedom that we had to kind of develop and look at that. So so that was the first thing about context. I want you to understand just the outline and why I won't be following it that closely. I will hit the two, obviously the two uh, um, Beatitudes, but the second thing related to context is this, who is Jesus talking to? is the question. And the reason I ask that is because when we first read the, the, the passage, it says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So the implication is that we know that he had been talking to a bunch of people beforehand. The implication is that he left them, went up, and his disciples came. And so the idea is that there's like 12, 15, maybe 20 people there's a few others there, but it's a relatively smaller group that he's talking to. And yet when we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in the end of chapter 7, Matthew says this, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds, plural, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. The idea here is that we've got hundreds, a thousand people, I don't know, but all of a sudden, from when he started to what he ended, there's a different sense of what that looked like. So here's what I think happened. If I could actually... So, uh, and I apologize if you can't see this in the back. This is actually a picture of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the southern end, where you're looking at here, you can see when it says he went up into the mountains, around the Sea of Galilee, there are they're a couple thousand feet high, the elevation. So they are they're significant. But you also can see there's lower regions around it that at sea level. Um, and so, actually, what you're looking at here is the southern end. What you see right here on the side is the beginning of the Jordan River as it flows, uh, flows south. So, what we know here from prior, the triarch chapter is that Jesus had been walking down along the shoreline, and this is where he called the first of his disciples, Peter and John and the others. He said, Come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. People started following him, he started getting crowds. And so, what he did is he would walk up the hill to get away from them. And and he's up in these areas here. But as you can imagine, it's not long. We see this throughout the Gospels where it wasn't long before the people find him. Word gets out, hey, he's up on that hill. Let's go. And so, but here's what's really cool. You can tell here that some of these hills form natural amphitheaters. And so there's, there's actually, you can actually find these on YouTube too, where someone could be down, you know, down around here, Talking, and you could be sitting up here, literally hundreds of yards away, and are talking just in a regular voice, and you can hear them perfectly. It just—it they're it, just the way the topography of the land. There's numerous locations where you have these natural amphitheaters. My guess is Jesus initially he came out up here, was talking to his his disciples. People started gathering around, and all of a sudden, this whole thing fills up. But he's in one of these natural amphitheaters, so that people can hear him and talk. So Jesus may have been started off talking to a few people, but by the time he finished, there was a large crowd that had gathered around to hear what he had to say. Now, there's something else about these people as well. We say, who's he talking to? As a whole, they were not affluent. These were not rich, wealthy people. These were not the movers and shakers of society. Because of the taxes, the Roman taxes, and because of the unscrupulous and unethical behavior of some of the Jews who were put in tax-collecting positions, they really struggled to keep their heads above water. It was a really tough way to live. They couldn't afford medical care. We know this because they were bringing to Jesus by the dozens and hundreds of people who were sick and diseased and who needed his touch because they had no other way to get any kind of care. Many of these people lived hand-to-mouth, hand-to-mouth, day-to-day is how they survived. All their lives, however, because of, of who they were and because of the, their upbringing, all their lives they've been told that one day the Messiah was coming. One day the Messiah's coming, and when he comes, he's going to get rid of Rome. No more taxes, and we're, we're not going to have to live with this. And 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 then uh, you know, the kingdom of Israel would once again rise to power and influence in the region. And no longer would corruption among leaders be allowed. And they wouldn't be mistreated by the bosses who cared only about making profit. And then they longed for that day. They longed for that day. They hoped for that day when the Messiah would come. But he never came. He never came. He never came. In their minds, he just hadn't come. And so these were people who had nothing, and many of them thought of themselves as they were nothing. They really didn't have much to offer society. They didn't have much to contribute just because of the way they felt like they had been, the weight that they were carrying. And to these people, to these people, Jesus uttered these words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rather than looking at the crowd and seeing people who were spiritually bankrupt, I think Jesus looked at the crowd and saw people whose spirits were tired and worn out. They were empty. There was nothing left in them. The tank was empty. Even Luke 6. um, Luke uh, Luke has a parallel account of the Beatitudes. Um, It's not the same. In fact, he only has four that he identifies. um, So it's not the same list. But But this one in particular, he does state. He says, blessed are you who are poor. He actually doesn't add the words poor in spirit. He has just who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. So it's consistent with what how Luke actually saw this passage as well. Jesus was speaking to their physical condition, not just their spiritual one. Here's the thing, regardless of how you understand this verse, very few of us are going to put the words blessed and poor in the same sentence. It's not something that we would do naturally. Jesus structured his talk this way on purpose. And he wanted people to know that the kingdom of God was like no kingdom they had ever known. This was, whatever you've been thinking, you can throw it away. That's not what it is. That's not what we're doing here. What you had been thinking is all wrong. ever happened to you that you're looking at something a certain way and you're convinced it's the right way. Only to discover you were wrong, and it's actually this way. I was like, huh. But I, actually, it happened to me just this week. As um, uh, so many of you know that um, I, I teach as an adjunct uh, on this particular school that I've done some teaching with, it's an online uh, type of thing. And for the last three years, I've taught a course in the fall. Uh, on, it's either Monday afternoons or Monday nights. Monday has worked for me because it's technically kind of an off day, um, it doesn't conflict with other things, and it works well. And so um, we've got a new, uh, there's a new program director uh, for the program which I teach, and so he sent me an email this week saying, hey, I can offer you this course for this fall. Um, it's on Thursday afternoon, and it's a course I've never taught before. I'm like, what? I mean, and I've had this conversation with him, and I'm thinking, there's no, nothing was it. I can offer you this course for this fall, period. And he had the details about the course. And like, what's going on here? Why, you know, we've had this conversation. Why, why are you doing this on Thursday? And, and so I find myself feeling, and so I emailed him back and says, well, wait a minute. What time? You know, I know, actually are you, are you really asking me to teach a new course? Is this, I'm, I'm hoping he made a mistake. Oh, I made a mistake. It's actually this course. And he just copied the number wrong or something. And so I emailed back and he emailed back, um, well, we may have a little flexibility on Thursday, but yeah, that's the course. And I realized I was starting to feel like I was being jerked around. And it's like, what I've been doing this for three years, and there's a lot of work to develop the course, the content, and all those things. And without any conversation, we just want you to do something different. And I was starting to feel like, are they trying to move me aside? You know how your mind plays these things, and you start creating scenarios that you're sure there's a reasonableness to the scenario you're playing out. So finally, rather than emailing back and forth, I just picked up the phone and I says, All right, Aaron, walk me through this. What's happening here? And I said, Here's what it feels like to me. And he does pause, he goes, That couldn't be the furthest from the reality there, there could be. He said, said, Really, what happened is the professor who's done those classes in the past is no longer teaching with us. I am desperate for someone to teach this class. You're the only one that's qualified among our faculty that can do this one. Huh. You know, so all of a sudden, everything changed. Well, Well, here's the funny thing. Nothing had changed. They're still asking me to teach a class on Thursday, one that I've never taught before. But how I perceived it changed instantly. Instead of feeling like I was being jerked around, instead of feeling like things were bad, all of a sudden I realized I actually had greater value than I thought I did to them. I actually meant a little more That's what's going on here with Jesus as well. Same idea. He's talking to people who look at their life, look at their situations and say, I've got nothing. I've got nothing to offer. We're being jerked around by the Rome, by taxes, by all these things. Nothing's working. Nothing's happening. This is a terrible, terrible existence. And Jesus is saying to them, don't think of yourself as poor. You're not a victim. You have more available to you than you realize. What Jesus was doing here, he was just wanting to change the perception. The reality wasn't going to change that day. They still had the same things, but we've got to change the way we think. We've got to change the way we talk. Similarly, so when he says this, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is then, listen, you who are poor, you have everything. You have the kingdom of heaven because that, that is actually what you should be looking at. The kingdom of heaven is what's most important. It isn't his other stuff. This stuff is temporary. This is eternal. And you have it all. You have more than what you know. Similarly then, in the, the next pair—not uh, um, parable, Beatitude, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Here too, I'm going to b- differ a bit from what was in the outline. Uh, I'm not sure that Jesus was asking people to mourn over their sin, which is what's there. See, Jesus often framed his words around Old Testament prophecy. Um, You may recall that while he was on the cross, remember him saying these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's an exact quote, word for word from Psalm 22.1. Exact quote. And then even later on, he's still on the cross. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Again, that's an exact, direct quote from Psalm 31.5. Jesus did that frequently. Listen to these words from the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. Sound familiar? When Jesus says, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, he's alluding to this passage in Isaiah 61. There's an understanding, there's a context here that was carried centuries earlier, centuries earlier that he is now saying that what was talked about here, in fact, he even says this, he, uh, and Luke actually accounts for this. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus actually reads this in the temple and says, this is being fulfilled in your presence today. So Jesus was always, look at me, remember that? Here. Remember that? Here. Remember this? Now. What was is no longer going to be. What happened is changing. And he's wanting people to realize your circumstances do not define you, nor do they define how God looks at you and sees you. So those who mourn are the people who are poor, they're downtrodden, they're oppressed. They mourn because life hasn't turned out the way they thought. They mourn because they need help, and none is available. They mourn because God hasn't rescued them. Now, I think it's interesting that if you notice that those who are poor in spirit, it says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's present tense. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's now. However, for those who mourn, comfort will come. It's still in the future. For they will be comforted. So what is he saying here? Don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. Your day is coming. So let me end my uh, time here with two thoughts about this in, in general. In Luke uh, chapter 9, um, Jesus has his 12 disciples. And in verse 1, it says, When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So my one, one thought is this. There's an expectation that we carry on the work of bringing God's kingdom here to earth. This wasn't just for Jesus to do while he was walking around. Then when he left, it all stopped. He was here to show us the way. This is how you're to live. This is what you're to do. This is how you're to think. Now go do it. And so he actually did. He had practicums, student teachers, or, you know, student teaching, if you will, with his disciples. All right, send them out two by two, go try it and see what happens. The Beatitudes describe God's radical reconstruction of the heart and define what it looks like to represent his kingdom. It's God's kingdom happening through our lives. So my fi- final, second and final thought here this morning is this. I started my time this morning talking about my admiration and appreciation for arts and craftsmen, people who can see beyond imperfections and create amazing works of art. And I just want you to know that God looks at you the same way. He looks at me the same way. He's well aware, well aware of all of our faults. He's well aware of all of our failures. The, he's not surprised that we've got something in our past. Or, I mean, he's, he knows us better than we know ourselves because too many of us often live in denial, don't we? God knows it all. He sees it. He's aware of it. But he looks beyond our current state and sees what could be. What could be. When we give our lives to Jesus, God says, okay, let's get to work. And I have to wonder sometimes with well, some of us he kind of rubs his hands again and says, this is going to be great. Not because of anything inherently good within us, but because of his ability to bring about transformation